Good morning. It's wonderful to be with you once again. Uh, my name is Paul, if we've not met, and um, I'm speaking to you from my home. I was very nearly speaking to you from my kitchen, but then Ross went and spoke to you from his kitchen last week, and I'm so keen to prove to you that I'm totally free, uh, that I obviously then couldn't go and film from the kitchen as well, uh, though we had some focusing issues with the famous bookshelf behind me. So we're back here, but at a slightly different angle um, with, with the people with broadcasting permits who are allowed to be in my home to help me, and we were very grateful for that. Um, so we are, yeah, we're, we're together as usual all over the place, all over the world in some cases, and welcome to those of you who are coming to this conversation from far away. We're talking about but God, and um, by now I think you know that, that those are our two favorite words in the whole Bible. Um, and we're gonna speak about another story, an amazing story, a story of, although he probably should be more famous, one of the most amazing kings in all of, of Jewish history, not King David, in fact, um, but another. Uh, and the reason we're gonna go to this story is because I think the story holds the key for how on earth we are able to actually live without worry at all. That's what I want us to deal with. I want us to, by the end of this conversation, have allowed God to help us understand that it's not only possible, but it's mandated for us. And it's, it's achievable that we can live without worry. Can you imagine? We're worried at the moment, aren't we? Most of us are worrying about all sorts of stuff. Um, and when Bern and I were chatting about this preach uh, in the preparations for it, it actually occurred to us, most people don't even think it's possible to live without worry. We can't even imagine that that's possible to live free from worry. In fact, some would say we shouldn't even try because worrying about the right things maybe seems a little bit like wisdom. And worry and wisdom have a few things in common, I suspect, but that doesn't reflect well on worry. I think that just reflects badly on wisdom. Worry is not good for us, um, particularly when it's something you can't control, when you can't affect it, when you're going to admit or, or commit huge amounts of energy and imagination and emotion to a topic when you're going to talk about it, think about it, have, you, have it wake you up in your bed at night and not be able to achieve any kind of shift in that issue, not be able to affect it in any way. When you're committing all those sort of psychological resources to something you can't change, that's incredibly bad for you. Uh, and so we really need to avoid this kind of cancer of the mind that we have. Worry saps our energy. I don't know about you, but... Many of us are getting exhausted. The idea of another Zoom call makes me want to hurl. You know, it just feels tiring. The, the uncertainty and the, and the worry uh, is really wearing us down. So we, we want to get away from worry. There are a few other reasons we want to get away from worry as well. Matthew 6 has come up a few times uh, in the course of lockdown, um, particularly in the first sermon, Crisis to Kingdom Come. I'd, I'd really recommend you go and listen to it, uh, almost like a prequel to this sermon again when we're done, because I, I think it, it brings um, another lens on the same issue. Um, but Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Uh, everyone else, pagans, run after all this stuff, food to drink and clothes to wear and so on. But God knows that you need them. So don't worry about tomorrow. So Jesus doesn't want us to worry. In fact, in Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, we see that the word of God, the revelation of who he is, when it comes to people who have their hearts crowded out by the worries of this world, it's not able to bear fruit. So worry saps us of psychological energy. Worry denies us something that Jesus says is possible for us to live without it. And in fact, worry even causes us to miss out on some of the fruit of God in our lives. It's, a, it's, it's bad for us. And I think there's a way for us to live without worry. If you're not 100% convinced yet that you want to be free from worry, that, that you can be those people of God who actually don't worry about stuff, that like in 1 Peter 3, where we're told to be ready to give a reason for the hope we have, like people are just going to 
see us and be so freaked out, so confused by this hope, this calm, this lack of anxiety that they're going to beg us for a, a, an explanation. If you're not yet convinced that you want to be one of those people, um, I always love to drop a little bit of sort of questionable psychology into a sermon. There's this concept called learned helplessness. It's a terrifying concept, actually. Uh, and it's the idea that if you have been subjected to circumstances that are beyond your understanding and beyond your control for long enough, you eventually learn that you are helpless, even when in fact you're not. So later on, you encounter other circumstances that you could affect or understand, but you just decide already, this is beyond my understanding and beyond my control. They did a really neat little study on this. They took kids and they gave them a, a spot test on stuff that none of them had seen before, kind of general knowledge. One set of the children were given the test in, in the correct order, i.e. it started with the easiest questions and slowly built up to the harder ones. So the kids had the kind of emotional high of, oh, I know this one, I know this one, I know this one, oh, it's tricky, yeah, got it. And they ended up doing the back end of the test so, like, radically so much better than the kids who got the inverse. The kids who were sat down with a test that they'd never seen before and got the hard, almost impossible questions first. Oh, don't know that one, don't know that one, don't even know what that subject is about, never mind what the answer is. By the time they got to the back end, they were just fluffing all the questions that normally they'd have been able to get right. So worry is sapping your brain of power. It's sapping your heart of power. It's even sapping your faith of power. Uh, and Jesus says it's possible for us to live without worry. Right, so what are we worrying about? Let's just first name what's out there. I mean, we're being told over and over again, not only that we should worry about X, Y, and Z, but also that we should worry that other people aren't worrying about the right stuff. So we're filling social media catalog after catalog of posts with, no, actually, it's not the virus you should worry about. It's the economic fallout for businesses afterwards. No, in fact, that's not what you should worry about. It's 5G and the conspiracy theory that that's actually what's caused it. No, 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 you shouldn't worry about that. You should worry about a second wave of the virus that's going to come if we start businesses too soon. No, actually, no, you shouldn't worry about that. You should worry about stray dogs in the township that aren't getting fed. Or no, you should actually worry about domestic violence. And you're like, oh, I didn't even think that was part of this. Okay, I must worry about that as well. And then someone else say, no, you should... You should worry about increased governmental power that this is going to give. You should, you should be worried about what politically it looks like in the future. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Okay, I must worry about that as well. And you must worry about the surface. Apparently, we all have to worry about the surface. Um, sorry if that was a low blow. But it's like forever we're being told, no, worry about this. No, worry about that. You should worry about... Essentially, we are freaking out, not only about the things we're afraid of, but we're afraid of other people's fear as well, and that it's pointed in the wrong direction. So not only are we sapping our own energy, uh, we're then recruiting to that situation and we're doing our best to encourage everyone else to worry as well. I'm not going to be so bold as to try to tell you what you should or shouldn't worry about. I'm not going to be so bold as to tell you what you should or shouldn't worry about. That for each one of you in your specific circumstances, I could stand here and say, well, that's bogus, that's true, but it's none of your concern and that's legitimate for you to worry about. What I'm rather going to do is ask you to join me in listening to Jesus as he tells us uh, through the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians, simply not to worry about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He says, don't worry about any of it. None of it. Don't worry about any of it. Instead, there's some praying you can do, there's some thanking that you can do and you can enter into a whole new way of living in Christ Jesus that is characterized by peace, peace that transcends understanding. Okay, great. Thanks, Paul, the apostle. Thanks, Paul Taylor as well for bringing that up. How? How? Okay, so how do I not worry? 
Now, there is one massive theological concept that we're going to go to this cool story about that cool king I mentioned earlier that unlocks how actually to live without worry. And it has been hard to prep for the sermon. I don't normally like to draw attention to that stuff um, because it's not about the preacher anyway, but for some reason it has been such a struggle to think how to bring this theological concept to you because for some reason we shy away from it, we feel a little afraid of it. It's, it's the key, absolutely it's the key to living without worry, but it's not for free, it's, it's costly, it's an uncomfortable truth to wrap our heads around. And it's the idea of the sovereignty of God. That's a fancy way of saying God is in control. See, immediately you can see that's the solution to living without worry. If you can wrap your head and then your life around the idea that he is in control, there is no space for worry anymore. Worry is irrational in the face of that being true. But it's uncomfortable. The sovereignty of God feels like this big elephant in the room that we often don't like to talk about because if he's in control, that means I'm not. And if he's in control, that means that so much stuff that seems unpleasant or or, or negative, or even evil? Is God responsible for it? Uh, is this just fatalism? Is any of what I'm trying to do, or do any of my choices even matter? And all these other difficult questions come up. And there aren't really neat answers to many of those. Um, we can certainly say it's not the extreme of fatalism. We'll see in the story I'm going to tell you that it is still absolutely worth praying. It's absolutely worth attempting great things for God. What we do really matters. That's still true at the same time uh, as this huge idea. He is in control. And there's just no getting away from it. And maybe for a change, we should stop worrying so much about God's reputation and kind of tiptoeing around this idea. And let's just stare at it for a while. The sovereignty of God that there is a king on the throne, that there is a pilot in the captain's seat who's directing things, and he is absolutely in control. And if he's in control, then I don't have to worry about anything. And there is a peace that passes understanding, which is possible for me. Okay, so let's look at the story of how the sovereignty of God plays out in the life of Hezekiah. We hear in 2 Chronicles chapter 30 that there has not been a king of Judah like him. So just a quick catch up. Uh, the nation of Israel at some point has a civil war and splits into two halves. One half still called Israel, confusingly. The other half centered around the capital city of Jerusalem called Judah. Um, and so King David pretty much clearly is the head and shoulders above the rest king uh, when it comes to the story of God and his people. But King Hezekiah is amazing. And as far as the kings of Judah, after the separation of the two kingdoms is concerned, he's the greatest one there ever was. Um, and he, you can read his story in Chronicles and in Two Kings and also in Isaiah. Uh, and I'm not going to go into huge detail. There's been all this amazing stuff in the story, millions and millions of things I'd love to preach to you about. I would just encourage you to go have a read. Um, but you can start in Chronicles because Chronicles gives all the backstory of the fact that he was a king who took over from his dad, who was a rotter. He did terrible things in the sight of God um, and nailed shut the doors to the temple, stopped all worship of the one true God of Israel. And so Hezekiah, as a young king, has to start turning that around, reinstituting worship, getting the priests up and running again, trying to get the Passover up and running. And that's a story that I really highly recommend you go and read because he has to restart the Passover. People haven't got a clue how to do it. They're not ready. They haven't purified themselves. They missed the date. This Passover is supposed to happen, as you watch this now, exactly a month ago on Easter. Um, and they missed the date. And so coolly in the story, considering we're reading it right now, they do Passover a month later. So exactly on today as you're watching it. And there's this amazing moment where all these people who aren't ready, aren't prepared, haven't purified themselves, don't have the right sacrifice, just get to join in anyway. You know, there's this idea that even if you're coming to faith late, even if on 
strictly speaking, Passover, Easter day, you weren't thinking about Jesus. If you're thinking about him now, it's not too late. You can join in. And so Hezekiah does this. He kind of brings this nation that had fallen away from God back into relationship with God. All is going well. Then they get attacked. The Assyrians come to um, to lay siege to Jerusalem. They take out two of the other fortified towns down closer to the sea, and they're now around the city of Jerusalem. And this terrible king of Assyria, Sennacherib, uh, which is an easy name to say, uh, sends his envoys to go and start shouting out all kinds of uh, threats at the people. Um, and the, the threats are really intimidating. And as this army arrives, um, the people of Israel, or of Judah, start freaking out, obviously. Hezekiah tells them, well, let's do a few things firsthand. Let's just prepare for this coming siege by redirecting the flow of water. This is just a super cool thing, because he digs this incredible engineering feat, this tunnel that redirects the flow of water from a, uh, a spring out in the valley where the army would have ended up being encamped, the Gihon Spring, and um, you need a lot of phlegm for this story. Uh, and he redirects it through an amazing tunnel into, within the city walls. You know that for ages, people would have read in Two Kings about the fact that he built this tunnel and redirected the flow of water and thought, oh, that's just a nice Bible story. And then in the 1800s, 1870, 1880, they discovered that exact tunnel. You can go and walk through it to this day. I have walked through Hezekiah's tunnel that he dug exactly like the Bible says he did. It's quite an amazing thing. It's this sort of five, 600 meter long tunnel that drops only 30 centimeters throughout the course of it so the water can flow in naturally. And um, so he prepares in that way, but he also prepares the people. He says, guys, they're probably going to say all kinds of stuff. They're going to shout all kinds of smack at you. Just don't answer. So then Sennacherib's envoys arrive, and they start saying to the people of Judah, don't trust Hezekiah. He says you're going to be fine. Trust us. You're not going to be fine. Has any other nation been able to stand up to what we've done to them in the past? Has um, the, the, you know, this nation over here, Samaria, wherever else, all of them trusted in their gods, and all of them failed? The same is going to happen to you. Don't listen to Hezekiah when he says that God will look after you. Because in fact, God sent us. We're here for you. So instead, strike a bargain. Um, my, my king is going to be kind to you. He'll give you guys some horses. You've got such a tiny army anyway. You probably don't even have as many men to ride them as he has horses to give you. He's going to let you all farm your own farms. You can grow your own vines and drink from your own wells. And in time, he'll relocate you to another place that'll be just as good as this, if not better. It's going to go well for you if you give in. But if you fight, if you hang on to the dream, uh, you're going to get crushed just like everyone else has been crushed. Now, the uh, representatives of Judah are listening to this uh, dialogue coming from the representatives of Sennacherib, and they say, uh, guys, could you just... Just speak in Aramaic, please. We understand Aramaic, but you're speaking in Hebrew and all the people can hear the stuff you're saying. And it's going to be freaking them out. And they say, no, that's the whole point. We're going to speak even louder. And they start saying all this other stuff in Hebrew and all, listing all the precedent as to why they should have no hope at all. And, and amazingly, the people of Judah, who can hear clearly what's being threatened, say nothing, just like Hezekiah told them to. The guys who've been doing the representation go back to King Hezekiah, tell him what's happened. And Hezekiah doesn't do what I am so sure all of us would do. He doesn't quickly run around making sure that everyone is still on message. He doesn't quickly repair his reputation. He doesn't go and worry about what everyone else is worrying about. Hey guys, are you, are you okay? Are you still strong? Are some of you starting to waver? You know, I find myself so afraid of other people's fear. 
a lot of the time. I feel like the chances the economy has of recovering, the chances the society has of, of coming together all depend on people not acting out of fear and selfishness. Hezekiah doesn't worry about everyone else's worries. He's so sure that he can trust God that, well, if God is in control of me, then God is in control of them as well. So all he does is go straight to pray to God. And he hangs out with God and he, and he cries out in desperation. And Isaiah the prophet gives the answer, hey, it's going to be fine. In fact, more than fine, no enemy foot is even going to set foot in this camp or in this city. Their camp is going to get ransacked. You're not going to have to do anything about it. In fact, King Sennacherib is going to get called home to his capital city of Nineveh, and he's going to get killed by one of his sons when he's worshiping his God. Uh, And that's exactly what happens. So they um, suddenly wake up the one morning, and the angel of the Lord has just wiped out 500,000 something odd soldiers, and then Sennacherib heads home, and there's a coup, and he gets wiped out just like he was um, prophesied to be wiped out. God absolutely took control of the situation because Hezekiah prayed. That is one of the most amazing prayers, but it's not the first time that's happened in Hezekiah's life. You'll read immediately after that in the chapters that follow something that actually had happened just before this siege, which is that Hezekiah got sick. Hezekiah got sick and Isaiah the prophet came to speak to him and said, well, God's actually said, you're going to die. This is going to be fatal. Don't stress about it. You're going to die. Worst things could happen, right? Um, Hezekiah goes, no, that's the worst thing that could happen. I don't want to die. And prays to God. And goes, oh, Lord, please don't cut me down in the prime of my life. God then says to Isaiah, hey, go back to Hezekiah and tell him, I've changed my mind. Fascinating because of the prayer. Um, and in fact, prepare an ointment out of figs. So there's some medicine involved here, even though it's a miraculous healing. Uh, put it on the boil, he'll be fine. And Hezekiah was fine. So twice Hezekiah has had this amazing experience of coming to God in a situation that seems impossible, praying to the Almighty One and seeing things absolutely turn around. It's an amazing story. And really one I can't recommend highly enough that you go and study. But I want to just look at one or two things quickly that leapt out at me as I read this story. The first thing that is immediately evident to me is that one of the things we struggle with most about the sovereignty of God, the idea that he is in control, is our incredibly limited perspective. See, when Hezekiah gets sick, there's quite an uncomfortable line uh, in in the narrative, which says that it's a sickness that actually God had sent. Now, all sorts of terrible stuff happens and it's Satan's fault or it's our fault. Let's not start trying to work out, is God in charge of sickness? But the point is, Hezekiah thought it was. Hezekiah thought this sickness came from God. And not only that, God had then prophesied, you are going to die from this. It's okay. So God was in it, if that's possible to say. Hezekiah then says, no, please don't let me peg out. God relents and changes his mind. Do you know that after that moment? So Hezekiah gets to see this amazing victory. That's good, right? Well, I'm not so sure because the Bible tells us that that victory caused Hezekiah to become proud. And in fact, as wonderful and really wonderful a king as he had been up until that point, being part of this amazing miraculous recovery from sickness, then being part of this incredible deliverance from the siege of the Assyrians, did something inside Hezekiah's heart that made him a little proud, which meant that later when Babylon uh, sends a bunch of people with some get well cards and some, hey, we heard some cool stuff happen to you, um, Hezekiah says, well, hey, let me show you around. I've got all this amazing stuff to show you, all this wealth, all these incredible things. And he's showing them the treasury and showing them all the military positions and showing off the kingdom of Judah to Babylon who go, oh, that's interesting, that's interesting, that's interesting, and add it all to their shopping list. And a generation later, Babylon would come and take Judah into exile. You see, we have this limited perspective that like, well, if I was to die, surely that's the worst thing that could happen. Or if 
whatever, name a thing, name a thing you're worrying about. From our perspective, of course, that looks like the worst possible thing. But I wonder, had Hezekiah gone, okay, God, well, I don't want to die right now, but what do you think I should actually be praying for? Should I be praying for healing from this, uh, this sickness or not? He may have got a very interesting answer from God. I'm not sure it was good news for Hezekiah that he got healed from that sickness, in fact. So let's just let that sort of sit in the back of our minds. Our limited perspectives often make the sovereignty of God seem like something difficult. And if we had his perspective, we'd understand, in fact, what he is doing is incredible. And what he is doing is good. It's good for his people. It's good for his glory in the history of mankind. Um, and perhaps the question we should be asking is not, oh, God, take this away, but God, is there anything that this could be useful for? Is there a blessing in this? Is there something you want to be for me in this moment? Should I be praying this away or should I be praying something else out of this circumstance? Because we recognize that our perspective is so limited. The next thing that's fascinating to me is, I've mentioned it already, when you have this incredible perspective of the sovereignty of God, that he is in charge, I mean, he really was in charge. He was orchestrating stuff. Half the reason that the Sennacherib and co rushed off home was the angel wiping out most of their camp. The other half of the reason why they went home is that they heard rumors that Ethiopia was coming to attack. Good old Africans. You can always depend on the Africans to come and save the day. Ethiopia was about to attack back home at Nineveh, and that was the other reason they had to go back, which meant that God, and you can read about this in Isaiah, had started those wheels in motion generations before as well. He'd been using the Egyptians and the Ethiopians and all these other nations to orchestrate his plans in geopolitics. If you have this perspective that you have a sovereign God who is in control of stuff, it causes you to be really humble and humble to the point where like Hezekiah, you don't end up protecting your own reputation. I mean, one of the things, this is going to sound dwarf, except that I suspect it's true of all of you. Of all the things to worry about right now, I've got a neighbor behind me who has been a lockdown, well, she, she's, she's not really bought into the whole concept of lockdown. She figured the rest of us could get on with it while she does her own thing. And so she's forever got visitors coming to hang out with her kids, which is quite a thing. Uh, I don't know how you feel about that, but the big issue for me is not, well, maybe her kids might get sick or maybe that might cause my kids to get sick or maybe they might spread the disease to other people. You know the thing I'm worried about most? Is that her visitors are parking on my verge and I wonder if people driving past are gonna think I'm the one who's busy breaking the, the lockdown. Like our own reputation somehow has this huge place in what we are worrying or not worrying about. When you have a perspective that someone is in control of everything and it's not you, that makes humility so much easier. So Hezekiah doesn't immediately start running around Jerusalem going, hey, everyone, no, you can still trust me. Hey, everyone, I did hear God right. Hey, everyone, don't listen to Sennacherib. Let's quickly get our own propaganda back out there. He just goes, well, if God's in control, God's in control. If he's gonna cause me not to freak out and lose my mind, then he can cause them not to freak out and lose their minds. And if they are freaking out and losing their minds, he's still in control. He can still make it work. Hezekiah didn't leap onto social media and immediately start reposting all the things Isaiah had said beforehand to try and encourage everyone to be brave. He just went straight to God. I'm so inspired by that. I'm so challenged by the fact that I have a limited perspective. I'm so inspired by the fact that I can be humble in the face of a sovereign God. I'm also so encouraged to start to pray, like really pray. How much more would we pray if we realized that we are going to the seat of all power and authority when we do? This isn't just Jesus is a lovely counselor. He is that. This isn't just Jesus is a great friend. He is that. This isn't just Jesus is a source of psychological strength. He is that. No, he is also the king of the universe. And if I get to approach the seat of divine ultimate power when I pray, that makes it really exciting to go and do so, knowing that he can be on my, on my side, that he wants to work on my behalf and do amazing things in history. The other thing that leaps out at me, and this is the final thing I'll mention out of the story for now, 
is the difference between precedence and providence. You see, time after time, the Sennacherib's envoys and the Assyrians, when they're trying to intimidate the people of Israel, and please listen to this bit because I feel like this is absolutely right for now. They keep quoting all their past victories. In fact, even when Sennacherib's had half his army wiped out and he's heard Ethiopia is invading and he's rushing home, he still sends a final little parting shot. He sends another letter to Hezekiah saying, hey, don't think you're getting away with it. Did I, you failed to wipe out so-and-so? Did I fail to wipe out so-and-so? They consistently seem to be obsessed with all their past victories. And they're quoting precedent to show why we should have worry or fear today. That's exactly what people are doing now. Because in some ways, these are unprecedented times, but in other ways, there have been plagues and pestilences and wars in the past. And human beings are the same, right? Human beings haven't changed. If there is no sovereign God in charge of things, then history is doomed to repeat itself to a certain extent. And it is worth looking at precedent, economic precedent, political precedent. And we look at all this stuff and all the experts are telling us why we should have no hope or why we should be worried or the things we should be afraid of based on precedent. But if there is a sovereign God, then there is a thing more powerful than precedent called providence, where he says, I can work directly across the flow of things. I can change the course of human history. I can do what's never been done before. And so you've got this little tiny kingdom, Judah, who didn't even have enough men to put on 2,000 horses, being the one stumbling block for this mighty empire who had wiped out everyone else and every other opportunity for someone else to rely on their God. It turned out to be a weak hope. And yet he finally turns up at Judah, and Judah is the unprecedented one. The people of God are always unprecedented. We can expect some unprecedented stuff to happen if we're the people of God because there is this power called providence, the idea that a sovereign God can work on behalf of his people. He is in control. It's a simple idea, really. And as I said, it can sound a little daunting that he is in control. The idea of the sovereignty of God, I think, would be quite demoralizing, actually, if it weren't for two really important things. Firstly, he cares for you. Secondly, he wants to include you. See, if he didn't care for you, then if he was just in control, I don't know if I can really trust him. And if he doesn't want to include me, then this is just fatalism, right? There's no point in me attempting great things in my life. There's no point even really in me praying. Like He's just going to do whatever he wants to do. No, but he cares for you and he wants to include you. Let me show you how we know that. 1 Peter 5 verse 7 says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. In prepping this message, I've had this overwhelming sense that God, loves you. He loves you. So yes, he is sovereign. He's in charge of world events. He's able to move geopolitics at a whim. And yet he also is deeply interested in you. And so when I'm praying, I'm not just praying to the seat of divine power. I'm praying to my good father who cares for me. And so I can put my worries on him in the same way that when I'm flinging my little boy David around and throwing him in the air and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. He's just not afraid, even though his life is greatly at risk, because he's become convinced that his father is not just strong enough, but cares enough not to make a mistake, cares enough not to stop paying attention, cares enough not to railroad what he wants for the sake of what I want. You have a father who cares for you, and he wants to include you. Just look at the story that we've been reading. Hezekiah builds this amazing tunnel, overcomes an invading army, prepares the people, he, and he has these two hugely powerful prayers that change the course of his life as well. You have a God in heaven who not only is interested in you, and so you can trust his plans, but also wants to share his plans with you. Jesus talks about how friends know their master's plans as opposed to servants who just get told what to do. 
And we're not being invited into a slave-master relationship with God. But he wants to say, hey, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I want to achieve in the world. Here's how you can be involved in it. Here's how you actually are a part of the providence plan. I mean, how amazing is that? In Matthew 6, where we started, when Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow, instead we're told, seek first the kingdom. In other words, you don't only get to avoid worry and pray and have thanksgiving. You then also get to be involved in the beautiful stuff that God is doing right now. He's doing beautiful stuff right now. And if I'm freaking out about tomorrow, which I can't control anyway, I'll miss the opportunity to be involved in the beautiful things he's doing today. I'm just going to read a bunch of scriptures now that kind of, I trust, will marinate you in this huge idea to get your head and your life around, that he is in control. Don't fear, for I'm with you. Don't be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's Isaiah 41. Therefore, I tell you, let's go to Matthew 6 again. Don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothes? And your father knows that you need them. 1 Peter 5, we've read as well, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares about you. Let's go to some others that you don't know. Um, Don't worry. Let's go to Psalm 94. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus says in John. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give as the world gives. So don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you'll abound in every good work. And let's go back to Philippians 4 where we began. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We started out saying we're exhausted. When I truly wrap my head and my life around the idea that he is in control, there's rest for my soul there. I want you to be able to rest. We've said that it can feel like we're powerless, like there's nothing we can do, and that actually is really bad for ourselves. Well, you can pray. If you can, number one, have rest. Number two, you can pray. You can approach the seat, not only of divine power, but of deep care for you. And you can ask God what he's up to and ask God what he wants you to be up to and let him know what you're longing for or worrying about or needing. And we can pray with confident expectation of an answer. Fourth, we can seek his kingdom now. We can get involved in the beautiful stuff he's doing now. We can still attempt great things for God as we choose not to worry. And so if there is a pilot in the captain's seat, then this is the ultimate like moment of turbulence, right? Where everyone's stomachs are in their throats and we're freaking out. I'm trusting that right now you allow God to just come onto the captain's radio and say, don't worry, Got it under control. We're flying around the storm. It's going to get a bit bumpy, but I know exactly what I'm doing. Or else this is like the ultimate I know a guy moment, right? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go. We sometimes misunderstand that and think he's now given us the authority. It's all on us. No, no, he still has the authority, but he said, in my name, you can go. So we get to look at corona, at recession, at family chaos, at education, at whatever else is facing us and say, well, I'm not particularly impressive, but I know a guy. I know a guy. My father in heaven is sovereign. He's in control. And so right now, whatever the Assyrians in your life have been saying, whatever precedent has been quoted, I'm going to ask you to join me in praying to the sovereign God who is in control of everything and to declare that we're not going to worry any longer. Let's do that. Lord Jesus, I believe that you are in control.
that you are king, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. And so we are not going to worry any longer. We're not going to panic. We're not going to think you're asleep at the wheel. We're not going to think that somehow Satan is now in charge or that it's been left up to us that we're all alone. We're going to put our faith in you. Thank you so much that you have not left us alone, but that you are in control and that our, our futures are secure in your hands. And so we're going to rest in you. We're going to pray. We're going to give thanks. We're going to seek first your kingdom. We're going to get involved in the stuff that you're doing. Amen. This week, I'd really encourage you to join us on Tuesday night for um, the life group type moment that we have because we're going to look at the year of Jubilee, which is a whole other amazing thing, which has links to the story as well. So if you're going to read about Hezekiah, you'll see an amazing link to that. I'd also really encourage you, if you're joining us for the first time or if you have recently got involved with Olive Tree, that tomorrow night we're having a Zoom Get Connected meeting. This is going to be cool. People from all over the country and maybe the world are going to get to join the church tomorrow night and hear what we're about. Please email us so that we can give you the logins uh, to be part of that meeting. It's going to be loads of fun. And then I'd really, really encourage you to go and read Hezekiah and let God do what he, only he can do. Um, and finally, to strip off worry from you uh, once and for all. And part of that may need you to go back and listen to that first sermon, Crisis to Kingdom Come, where you can hear a little bit more about what seeking the kingdom looks like. I'd encourage you to do that. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to head back to our hosts now.